This is K-12 Tech Talk. K-12 Tech Talk. The podcast by K-12 Techs for K-12 Techs. Real conversations, real arguments, and real banter on trending K-12 technology topics and issues. Live from the somethingcool.com studios, this is the K-12 Tech Talk podcast. I am Josh. With me tonight is Mark. Hello, Mark. Hello. And this is episode 138. This is uh, another, spe- every every episode is a special episode. I guess I just need to get used to that. Uh, this episode, we have the godfather of student data privacy. It's, it's funny, I saw a post about uh, Steve, Mr. Smith, a week or so ago, and they called him the godfather of student data privacy. And I, I met text message Mark and Chris, and I said, hey, this is pretty funny. Mark, aren't you, don't you know Steve? You know, I just saw an article with him touted as the godfather of student data privacy. And Mark's like, oh, yeah, he's my friend. I was like, why Why am I not surprised? Mark's friends, friends with all of the important people. Uh, so... Uh, first, let's thank our sponsors real quick because this is going to be an interview-heavy episode. We'll uh, thank our sponsors real quick. It's um, continued support from Fortinet, Chris Illingworth over there at Fortinet, NTP, David Wren, Extreme Networks, and Dominic Mayer over there. They uh, they help make these episodes happen every week and show them some love. We'll have contact information in the show notes. Um, but please share, continue to share us with your friends. We had an amazing month of September. Um, I think our total downloads were over 4,500 total downloads. So that's a thousand downloads a week. If you do the math, right. Um, it's amazing. So keep sharing us, shoot us an email. We love listener emails, K 12 tech talk at gmail.com. And, uh, Mark, do you want to introduce And So after Steve's interview, We'll have an interview with one of our recent sponsors, um, Jupiter Sys, and uh, they're, they're, we'll hear about their product and what they do differently and how they handle things, LMS and Sys gradebook type stuff. So stick around for that interview. Mark, do you want to introduce Steve? So tonight we are joined by who I refer to as the godfather of student data privacy, my friend and my neighbor uh, here in New England, Steve Smith, the CIO of Cambridge Public Schools, and I want to say the founder or, or one of the, uh, the founding members of AFRL and Student Data Privacy Consortium. So uh, first question really is, Steve, tell us about yourself and, and how you got into student data, data privacy. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for the invite. Um, and yes, we are neighbors separated by a river, but the two cities are in no way, way <laughs> the same. It's a, it's a very big river. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so let's see. Tell, tell you about myself. So as you introduced me, Mark, I'm the CIO in Cambridge Public Schools. I am going into my 17th school year, or this is my 17th school year in Cambridge, which is hard to believe. Um, and then prior to that, uh, I was in Central Maine as a CTO for 11 years. So 28 years leading technology in school districts. Um, it's about time to... Um, start thinking about closing the chapter, right? But <laughs> it's, a, it's a long time when you reflect on it. Um, 
so how did I get involved in privacy? It was really after I came to Cambridge. Um, Cambridge, as you can imagine, was a, a big change from Central Maine. And, you know, one of the things that I first noticed was that the community in Cambridge, the parents were starting to ask about 15 years ago, a couple of years after I got here, um, you know, where their children's data was going and how was it being protected. Hmm. Um, so that's when, you know, we started really thinking about all the data going to vendors in the cloud, um, reading terms of service and privacy policies and ensuring that the vendors were not um, doing things they shouldn't do with that data. Um, and as you can imagine, I literally did that for years, probably you know three or four years of, of vetting apps by reading their terms of service and privacy policies before realizing, you know, there's, there's really certain things we're looking for and why don't we just get them to agree to those things instead of me having to vet all these privacy policies in terms of service. And Interesting. we created a data privacy agreement that the district would ask the vendors to sign. Um, and at the same time, we started building practices within the district to vet apps, uh, building a tool to keep track of them, to keep track of those data privacy agreements. And that's really how I got into privacy and starting to really learn about all the nuances and, and, uh, things kind of grew from there, you know, it just kind of became a passion. And this was all while you're actively operating as the CIO of Cambridge, right? It's, it, this wasn't, you didn't leave Cambridge schools to go do this full time. This was, this was all while you were leading the district technology department, right? Yep. Yeah, correct. And it was because it was a priority for the district, right? Cause the community was asking for it. We had to respond to it. So we needed to be able to, build these processes and, and assure the parents that um, we were doing everything we could to make sure that their child's data was not leaking out to places yeah. we didn't know. Yeah. So as far as the parents requesting that or the parents asking that question 15 years ago, that, that leads me to ask a couple other questions. Um, one, do you think the the fact that parents were asking that 15 years ago, I don't even think that really was on the radar here in Missouri. What, what do you think was um, a couple key contributing factors to that? Is it because the area that you're in, you do have some very high tech companies in the area and you have people that are exposed to that by the nature of their em employment or it, was it a social economical thing? What do you think some of those drivers were? So it's partially the, the high tech um, companies in Cambridge, but think about what else is very prominent in Cambridge. It's a very academic community, right? right. You've got Harvard and MIT. So, um, you know, it's just that level of um, academia and thinking about issues in Cambridge um, that led parents um, kind of ahead of the curve to start asking those questions. Interesting. 15 yeah. years ago, can you remember what were some of the first applications that you had to vet were? I mean, cause yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, I don't, I, Google. I can't workspace. remember the apps I vetted last week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that brings up an interesting question too. So, so you're still actively, you know, this, this historical uh, value, this um, 
tenant of a Pharrell and you're still actively vetting applications, um, you still you still deal with that on a daily basis. So I guess that job's never done. Right. You've been doing this for 15 years now. It's true. It's never done. But, you know, when I say I bet, I'd say that the district. Right. So the, sure, sure. The tools, processes, the, the consortium makes it a lot easier for things to be vetted. It's really vetted as a consortium. So, um, yeah. So I was in jest saying what I vetted last sure. week. But, yeah, in reality, it's a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah. Because of the consortium. So, OK, how has that conversation gone? You know, even say t- even say 10 years ago when when okay you've been doing it for a couple of years you kind of know how to read a terms of service now you know what things a company might agree to in a document or in an, in an agreement how how has that conversation with the vendor changed over the last 10 12 years yeah so the as i said in the you know, the story started with Cambridge, started with Cambridge creating a DPA and asking vendors to sign it. And as you can imagine, you know, we got quite a bit of pushback. Like, what? Sure. Are you crazy? We're not going to sign your DPA. Um, and I remember a conversation in Cambridge where someone said, you know, when we were just talking about this issue, they said, um, you know, this is never going to change until the market changes or there's some pressure put on ed tech vendors. And that's kind of when the light went on and I thought, well, why don't we just get together with a bunch of other districts and good old Mark on the call here was the first person I approached. <laughs> and um, it took, I don't know if you remember Mark, but I know it took months, maybe six months for your legal team to vet the DPA and originally yeah. agree to use the same language. Right. So Mark and I were the first two districts to get together to say, yeah, this makes sense. Let's use this common language. Um, and then we invited other districts across the state to join in yeah. um, and created the Massachusetts Alliance. So, you know, thanks to Mark, because it really does take a couple of leading districts to just step up and say, yeah, we're going to do this. And lots of times, you know, other districts follow. Sure. So. Well, I, I at the time, our, our legal office was, you know, they were overwhelmed. And, and in our district, we have full-time legal team in there. Mm-hmm completely swamped with everything. And I think it was probably the sixth or seventh one where I said, you know, that thing I've been telling you about, like we could just all agree on the same language and the guys across the river are doing this. And, and it took, you know, exhaustion to kind of uh, uh, get the legal team to say, you know what, maybe there is value in having just a standard agreement from, from vendor to vendor. So it took a while, but, but it was, you know, being able to work within a district that helped. Um, And I will say Steve took it way farther than we ever uh, could have within our district. And it wasn't f- until the momentum that Steve got with the other districts in Massachusetts that our district really, really got behind this and said, okay, this is really getting a lot easier uh, because there's huge momentum in our state. So at the point where you get a, an entire state, Massachusetts, on board with this and using the same language, using the same DPA, at what point did it kind of take off and start to become a national trend? Who Who were the was it kind of the East Coast guys? I know New Hampshire is big into security and data privacy. Did they jump on early? Who who were your, I guess, next hops in that agreement? Yep. So um, so kind of in between the next hop, right? When when Massachusetts was up and running, we called it the Massachusetts 
Student Privacy Alliance. Um, that's when, you know, we had the idea about expanding across the country, um, you know, and instead of creating a new nonprofit, new organization to do it, um, is when I decided to partner with Access for Learning because it was already a nonprofit in the K-12 field, had 3,000 districts, state agencies, and vendors. Um, so joining them and creating, that's when we technically created the Student Data Privacy Consortium as a special interest group within Access for Learning um, so that we could leverage their infrastructure, their nonprofit status, and their members to make it grow. And the next state was actually all the way on the other side of the country was California. It was the next big one um, to, huh. to jump on. Um, and it was an individual, Stephen Carr was his name, in Ventura County, who at that time was president of, of what's now called SITE. Um, it was a different name back then, but there um, is the uh, chapter, you know, for the state. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, so they were the next big state. And, of course, they have, um, you know, stronger uh, student data privacy laws in California, um, than we do here. In fact, we don't really have any in Massachusetts. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, they were seen as the leader in that area too. So getting them on board, they have a thousand districts that are part of site. So that was a huge momentum builder to say, look, we've got Massachusetts and California. Um, and that's how we kind of got it started. So I think it's a, go ahead, I was going to say, I, I think it's a really interesting point that Steve brought up that, you know, the state of Massachusetts really doesn't, do much. It's, it has really been a grassroots campaign uh, led by Steve. So when you start to see this momentum gaining in other states with it coming down from the state level, that never happened in our state. Still hasn't to this day. Um, that all the momentum that we've made really has been uh, led by and, and started by Steve. Interesting. So I guess, okay, so you have the state of Massachusetts, you have the state of California joining in were those conversations with vendors becoming easier or were they still pushing back at that time? So the more and more that we get involved, obviously there's more momentum. Um, you know, um, definitely when California came on, you know, people were starting to hear about the consortium. So what we purposely did in the beginning as we uh, got other states to come on is we encouraged them to create their own data privacy agreements that worked in their state because we knew it, just like Mark and I getting our legal team together, if we tried to get sure. a variety of attorneys from different states together to draft one DPA, there would have been a showstopper. Um, and I say that to answer your question because it was two or three years in that we had probably about 15 states or so that they all started to realize, look, there's a lot of this language is the same because we're all meeting FERPA. And they organically came around to saying, why don't we draft a national data privacy agreement? Hmm. Um, so I think around that time, because we started before we actually had a national data privacy agreement, we called it the national clause set kind of, that everyone was using. So I'm guessing, you know, um, two or three years into the consortium is it technically started in 2015. So probably, you know, 2017, we're probably starting to get a lot of momentum um, with, you know, 10 or 12 states on board. And that's when I think vendors really started to notice it. And, and of course, now today, there isn't an ed tech vendor out there that hasn't seen, 
the National Data Privacy Agreement isn't aware of the consortium, and, and uh, it's had a huge impact. But you still have vendors like I've had to deal with that will say, we don't sign those, <laughs> which is a very, very strange conversation to have. <laughs> um, so I guess now, you know, up, up present day, so five, six years ago, you had 15 states in present day. What's the usage like? What's the adoption like uh, states across the country? Yeah. So we have districts in 34 states that are part wow. of the consortium. 25 of those states have formal alliances, we call them, um, where the states have, the districts have gotten together within a state and are working together using a common DPA. So there's a few states that just have districts that are participating kind of on their own. Um, you know, we help them try to form that alliance because, I mean, as you know, every every state is different. What works in one state doesn't right. necessarily work in another state. I mean, Missouri has more debt that took the lead um, yeah. there. There's lots of states have some type of a, a CTO, CIO organization that takes the lead. Yeah. Um, but there are states that don't have that, that um, are just looking for the one district to, to lead it and things like that. And we just help support. We don't push anything down on a state or districts. We just kind of provide the resources and, and tell them what's working in other states. And they figure out the best way to get it going in their state. Um, Mark, do you have any questions? No, I think... Um... Over the last few years, we've had, obviously, there's been a, a monumental shift in the use of EdTech products with, with COVID. Um, how have you seen COVID change that conversation, either improve it, either hurt it? You know, what are the some of the things that you've seen in the last three years? Um, well, the, the biggest change, like you said, is the increased use of apps, the increased awareness Um mostly coming again from parents that are seeing their, that did see their kids online all the time. So there was more concern. So they started asking the districts. Um, so, I mean, there hasn't been a huge change in the practice because of COVID it's more been in the numbers, right? The number of districts that are starting to pay attention. Um, there's still a huge continuum of privacy awareness across the country because I travel you know, to all the states talking about privacy. And, um, you know, there are still many small districts that aren't thinking about it. You know, they're just lucky to have somebody that'll fix their PCs and, um, you know, right. are happy that teachers are using apps um, yeah. versus the opposite extreme, you know, that they're vetting everything and have a very tight environment. So, um yeah, so I mean, the biggest impact of COVID is really the volumes, building some more awareness, um, and getting more districts to pay attention. As far as vendors, um, there certainly was heightened because of that heightened awareness. There were some things in the news. I mean, you've got vendors like Zoom that weren't traditionally in education that got some pushback and had to do some tweaking. Um, so there certainly was some uh, impact on vendors to make sure they're adhering to their obligations. Um, so I guess that was the biggest impact of COVID. Steve, what, what um, <clears throat> assistance or changes would, would from the federal level, changes at the federal level law-wise um, would assist in this? What, what needs to be strengthened up 
from a student data privacy standpoint at the federal level or even a state level, if there are state legislators yeah. listening. Yeah. So, um, so federally, um, you know, we're really talking about FERPA, which, you know, turns 50 years old next year. It was written in 1974, long before anyone was thinking about yeah. the environment we're living in today. There have been a couple of amendments, but nothing to really address the world we're living in today. So there's been a number of um, attempts to, you know, um, put in <clears throat> put in some updates to FERPA, or, um, but there definitely needs to be work there, right? Have a have some federal legislation around student and children's privacy that is really applicable to schools, right? Um, and I say to schools and students specifically because um, laws around children's privacy sometimes have unintended consequences on schools if they're not thinking about, um, you know, like COPPA, right? Which um, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act from the right. FTC, which um, we've all heard of, and the vendors push back on us because it's a law aimed at the vendors around uh, children's privacy and requiring parental consent. You know, and if folks that aren't writing these, law, these laws are not taking into consideration the school environment requiring parental consent to use every app, you know, would bring us to a standstill, right? In yeah. classroom, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there needs to be some coordination, some really thoughtful legislation put in around um, being able to use apps that are secure um, and protect the privacy of children in K-12 schools. Um, the other piece that is really missing um, related to privacy is security, right? There's a, certainly a big push around cybersecurity for schools but in all of that talk, there's very little talk about ed tech vendors security requirements. Right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, CISA just put out some guidance to school districts that tells the schools that look for these eight things, <laughs> very basic requirements when vetting apps. Um, there is no federal um, you know, security requirements. There's very few state security requirements. I know you had Josh Alstead from New Hampshire on yeah. a, few, a month or so ago. Um, you know, New Hampshire does have some state regulations that require 42 specific NIST requirements. So every ed tech vendor, every school district has to have those 42 NIST requirements in place. Wow. Um, but, you know, there's a handful of other states that have similar laws, but we need to get out in front of that, right? And, um, and have a standard security requirement for anyone that's hosting student data that everyone can agree on. Um, and the consortium's working on a project related to that, but you were talking about laws. That's an area that is is void, right? Um, so some federal legislation around, um, you know, updating FERPA, making sure that um, any other agencies that are passing similar children's laws are, are really thinking about this K-12 environment um, and addressing uh, the lack of security controls and benchmarks um, for student data, I think are the priorities. I, 
you know, let me let me run a scenario by you, Steve, and see what what your reaction is to this. I, I was having a, a conversation with a school district yesterday, relatively small school district on the western side of the state, and just in passing, he mentioned that they aren't they aren't blocking social media for students on their in house network, like they they allow students to get to social media, and that raised a few eyebrows with uh, some cohorts of mine and like man that's you know we all we all kind of block that and he's like oh we tried to block it but teachers have it so ingrained in lesson plans that uh, they threw a fit when we blocked it <laughs> so you know several of us were like oh you you uh you really need to have a conversation with your leadership about that what what would your be your recommendation for that individual steve you know going into a meeting with administration that they haven't gone out of their way to prevent access to social media. And in some cases, faculty are using social media in the classroom, possibly with assignments. Yeah. So the biggest red flag for me is the fact that educators are using social media as a tool. Um, you know, the, the idea just separating out blocking social media versus not blocking it um, for students' general use um, I think in some cases is a district prerogative, right? Sure. It, um, as long as there are guardrails put around that. But when you start using it as a tool um, in the education environment and you are uh, thus mandating students use these tools, they're putting in student-level data, uh, I don't care, you know, if someone calls it PII or not. If it's student-level data, it should be protected. Right. Um, and the social media companies are not protecting that data. Yeah, they're um, selling it off. They're they're yeah, they're not right. just not protecting it. They're willingly <laughs> giving it away um, and making yeah. money off of it. Right, and building profiles and right, yeah, all kinds of things. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. <laughs> well, well, building off of that, I mean, social media has been around for, you know, 10 years. We've had enough time to kind of understand the impacts of social media from a privacy perspective. What What's hitting us now really quickly is artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. you know, the introduction of ChatGPT and BARD. It, are, are you thinking at your district or even within A4L about, you know, how does the how do privacy laws impact uh, the use of artificial intelligence tools? So that's a really good question, Mark. Yay, Mark. How would you like to join a project team? (laughs) 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 Um, So at at our district level, um, you know, our conversations are still kind of exploratory. We're not taking a knee-jerk reaction. We're not, you know, saying you can't use it. We're really just kind of exploring what are the positive uses of of AI. Yeah. Um, but I think from a privacy perspective, the conversations we've been having in the consortium is haven't been too deep yet. But and when we do talk about it, it really comes down to is the AI, um, what is it doing with student data, right? I mean, there's plenty of AI that students are just using to whatever, create things, to do research, to do some of the work and stuff. But if the AI is it, taking in student information and then reusing it in its large language model or whatever, then we've got an issue, right? 
So it's the consumption of student information via AI that does create privacy issues versus just students using AI. Mm-hmm. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. So the issue isn't as much kids going to chat GPT or BARD and asking a question. It's if they're actively feeding in information into BARD or chat GPT, name your flavor, to teach it something Mm -hmm. and then it to be that data to be reused elsewhere is the concern. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had that conversation with my, with actually a a colleague today where she's like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to block it or not. I say, it's not about, blocking it it's about you know you got to think about these generative ai tools as a guy on the street and you're asking him a question he's going to answer that question and he's going to take that conversation he just had with you to inform the next conversation so that should be you know what's governing our, our our conversation but how to build that into a state or a federal level guidance or policy is you know, because these guys work so fast at developing right. policies. And they, understand, and they understand the technology, right? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So to kind of wrap things up, you know, we've been talking to you for a little bit. We, we've got a lot of folks that are listening that are our K-12 tech directors and, and district CIOs. What are some practical tips that you can give to folks if you are maybe in a state that's not, that, that does not have strong privacy laws or you're just trying to get your feet wet into this topic? Yeah. Um, so first of all, you're not alone, right? <laughs> don't, don't try to tackle it on your own because you'll just get overwhelmed. So I guess the first thing to do is, you know, look for your peers, look for somebody else that you could reach out to that might be a little further ahead of you, not to mention the consortium, but just realize you're not alone. Um you know, one thing that has always helped me in dealing with it in my own district was the this kind of idea of picturing your own ecosystem and the fact that, you know, you are the gatekeeper for that and you need to, I, I mean, it might sound funny, but I actually kind of visualize this in my head, right? You know, the, the ecosystem we've built over the last 17 years in Cambridge, where is the data going that's living in that ecosystem? And every place that it is going, do we have it protected either technically or from a, you know, legal uh, privacy perspective. Um, And keeping in mind that those ed tech vendors is part of that, you know, and you have an obligation. You can't technically be sharing that data with those ed tech vendors without some protections in place and data privacy agreements and things like that. So that's one thing for just somebody that's newly thinking about, about privacy um, you know, I mentioned going, doing a lot of presentations. There's one that I just call Privacy 101, and it's just laying out what what a tech director or school district's obligation is to protect student data. And if they hadn't been thinking about it, I can't tell you how many times I've seen their eyes just widen in the room and they look at each other like, <laughs> oh, my God, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so having that and then... Um, Like I said, looking for uh, other people that are doing it, other resources, reach out to the consortium. Um, But one thing that's very important that is probably one of the hardest things to do as a a CIO or a leader in your district is if you haven't been having any conversations about student data privacy, building the awareness amongst the staff about why that is important. You know, and I don't have any 
short shortcuts to do that. <laughs> it's, you know, every district is different. It takes time, you know, in, in Cambridge, I think it took three or four years of co constant messaging, you know, 15 years ago about why this is important, but eventually you get over the hurdle. And once you have staff realizing why it's important to only be using apps that, you know, you've vetted, you know, you're halfway there and then there's, there's tools and things to do it. So and reach yeah, out to the consortium, the private the SDPC. I would, I would have to say that getting started is, is difficult because especially if you're coming in a district where it's kind of been the wild West and no one is, yeah. has tried to wrap their hands around that process and telling a faculty mm -hmm. member, no, you just can't go find a willing nilly website and have kids log into it and then grant drive access. Um, that, that can create some hard feelings. Um, I think what's going to play in the favor of tech directors coming up here in the next month is that Google third-party app vetting process that they're turning on for people under the age of third or under the age of 18, excuse me. Um, I've kind of taken the stance now that the only apps that we've approved are apps that we have DPAs for with the state and going forward, if an app needs to be approved, that's fine. We'll have that conversation. We'll approve the app, but only once they've signed the DPA. And I think that's an easy way to kind of dip your toe if you're looking to get started in this, that's an easy carrot stick kind of mm. method um, is to hold fast on that. So we'll, we'll see how that, how far that gets me at my district. Well, was, was yeah. that an easy or a hard conversation for you, Steve? Um, originally. The, the, yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the Google apps permissions. Oh, it was easy for us because we already had vetted all those apps, right. right? And we were using a security wrapper around our domain that was already only allowing the apps that we had DPAs with. So oh, got okay, it. got it. We just had to then look at the Google list and align it. That's all. But, um, oh, that's all. That's all. That's all. Cool. But the other thing I want to add is that it's it's a multi-year process, right? I mean, sure. you said yeah. it, Josh, it's, it's, it's hard and overwhelming at first, but you don't have to do it all in one year. I mean, take right three, four years to get there and just do, a few, you know, the apps that you need to at first. And there will be some that maybe you can't get a DPA for right away, but, you know, you've been using it for a couple of years. You know, you might have to ease out of it, but you can't just turn things off and stop. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> However, our, our friend Pate would say, just block it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just funny that that comes up. Um <laughs> It, and I think those conversations are easier to have with vendors that you're paying, um, especially when it comes time for contract renewal yeah. or contract negotiations. Like, look, you're going to sign this DPA or we, we're not renewing the contract. We've had to have a few of those conversations at my district. So there there are ways to kind of get a, yeah. to, to get your point across a little bit more effectively. Yeah. Well, thank Definitely. you so much for, for coming on, Steve. This has been awesome. Uh, and I, I am in awe of everything you've done across the river. Uh, I wish I could just have a fraction of what you've accomplished in Cambridge and in my district. So thank you so much for leading charge, both in Massachusetts as well as in the, the entire well, nation. Well, well, thank you, Mark. But I wouldn't want your job either. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, I brought along Stuart from Jupiter with us this morning. Uh, we are recording. I see Josh is sipping on maybe some coffee. I think 
Stuart talked about taking some espresso shots or something before he jumped on the pod with us. Uh, so, Stuart, nice to have you on finally. Hey, thanks for having me on, Josh and Chris. Uh, I'm an avid listener and glad to be able to bring my voice to the table. Yeah, so you, did, uh, uh, you 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 emailed us basically to say that I wasn't doing a good job explaining what Jupiter is, and we thought we'd just have you on. Josh is good at asking questions, you know, so uh, we're hoping to spend a few minutes with you. Yeah, I mean, Jupiter does a lot. I mean, SIS is kind of what you've been hearing if you've been listening to the pod, but uh, we do a lot of different features. So I'm sure Josh will be able to get all the get all the details out. Yeah, so let's jump right into it. Um, we've talked about SIS and that Jupiter is a student information system, but what what else does Jupiter do or can Jupiter do that, that we might not be thinking about? So, you know, you hear the term one on, you know, the a one one-stop solution a lot in ed tech. Um, so I'm not going to go down that road again. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the features that we offer in addition to assess, um, obviously we have the online gradebook, which I feel like with a lot of other, um, a lot of other providers is just kind of glossed over. Like you get your assess and the gradebook comes with it. Um, we're a little different from other companies because we started as an online gradebook. If you remember back hmm. um, in grade was like the only option out there. Um, we were actually the first online gradebook that was around. So we started in the gradebook space, um, and that was, you know, 18 years ago when we started that. And since then, um, we have added a, a, a full function sys, like you've talked about. Um, but I think one of the important things to note is that we've had the same development team for 18 years. So we've oh, had wow. the same developer. So when you're in our system, I mean, you you know when you're in one part of a system and you go somewhere else and you're like, oh, there's an API and an acquisition involved here. Like this looks yep. and yep. feels different. And then when the data flows to the other part of the system, it doesn't look the same. But, um, you know, we've had the same team, so everything looks and feels the same. In addition to the grade book, um, we have a messaging platform, um, which is something that also is typically a standalone product um, that people have, and that supports email, app communication, obviously text messages. We don't do robocalls, so I want to be clear on that. It is 2023. I know some people want robocalls. Um, that's just not the direction that we're going. Um, in addition to that, we have, I guess, what an, an LMS. LMS is kind of a hard thing to pin down in 2023. Our LMS is full-featured, but it's teacher-centered. It's not for you get a bunch of curriculum, you buy curriculum and you dump it in there. Um, we've explored common cartridge. There's a lot of different, you know, different standards in place, but uh, it's a teacher centered learning management system as opposed to just a, a vessel for um, content to be um, placed into. So, that, so that's a spiel. Yeah. So um, clearly web-based, right? Like um, we're not, this isn't going to be an application that gets installed or anything like that, right? It's web-based application. Um, if if a school doesn't want to host on primary, is that even an option with Jupiter hosting at a school site versus hosting in the cloud with you guys? Can you tell us a little bit of what those options are? Um, we're 100 percent cloud based. Always okay. have been. So we don't have any local hosting available. Um, so that's a little bit of a difference. Um, you know, we have a lot of security protocols in place. I mean, we use sort of like, you know, the top end, um, you know, rec space and things like that, but it's all cloud-based. So we don't have local hosting, which is again, a difference. Yeah. And, and that can be good or bad depending on, on the practitioner's viewpoint on that. Um, you know, I think a lot of places are, are moving more towards the thought process of let's less 
for me to worry about protecting on my on my network. Let's let that be, you know, from a from a backup standpoint or firewall standpoint. Let let's let that problem be someone else's. So that is interesting. You guys are one hundred percent cloud based. So what about uh, parent? You know, you mentioned messaging. Mm-hmm. What about um, port, parent portal or parent access? How does a parent access Jupiter to get report cards or to check attendance, that kind of stuff? Yes, yeah, so we, we have a single web portal. Um, so for each uh, student, there can be up to 99 parents and contacts. So if you want the whole aunts, grandmas, brother-in-laws, everybody to have access, you can. Um, so they have separate logins, which are available. Uh, one thing to note is we do uh, have automatic translation of those. So if a parent chooses to have it translated to anything that Google Translate supports, it's going to translate the entire parent login. It's going to translate any messages that you send, as well as any reports you have that option to translate. Hmm. So that's a part of it. And, you know, it can't that information can be imported if you have like the ISO code. Um, if you want to import that in so you can tag that on the front end or some schools just kind of send it out in English and then hope they can navigate to figure out how to translate it. Um, so on that login, I mean, it is a single login that can be via the app, via, you know, tablet, whatever, however they want to access. Um, and on that, so, you know, you have one screen that we call like our to do screen, which is a little bit different. We found that, um, you know, sometimes if students go to somewhere and it's a giant list of all of their assignments, everything they have to do, everything they've done. It's just a lot to take in. So one of the differences we have is their landing page is a to-do screen, which shows all their classes, shows all their grades in their classes. So if they just want to say, do I have a 90 to get whatever I want to get? You know, like they can see that really quickly. We're going to list the next three upcoming assignments. So that's a few reasons as a learning management system. And if they have 10 assignments that are missing, we're only going to put one of them on their to-do screen because the rationale is, does it really help the student to see 15 missing assignments? Is that going to help them do it? Um, So that's our main landing screen with the grades. They can click uh, any class to see all the details. So that will show them all of their 15 missing assignments um, on that screen. And then, you know, they can click one more tab down for messaging. Um, So messaging is just boom, click, send a message. Students have access to the teachers of their classes, APs, and any other designated admins that kind of want to be available for messaging. Um, They have another tab for attendance. They have another tab for discipline or behavioral stuff if you want to put that online. Um, So that's all there on one app. Um, And on the teacher side of things, it's a little bit, you know, they're on their grade book. They're two clicks away from a message where they can quickly filter out, send a message to all my classes, anyone under a C go or missing Hmm. assignments or all classes but the difference is it's just it's one app um, where all those things are available Um, and i didn't mention standards-based grading we fully support standards-based grading as well um, if if that's the direction your district's going so as far as um interfaces getting getting that data or rostering information out do you guys support um interfaces with you know those big companies like clever or classlink or rostering applications (laughs) so clever yes um i think one thing that i i I mentioned to chris early on is our exports are very 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 flexible we don't have dedicated templates so if you're trying to export student database uh basically you have the option is export students and then we have every possible data point about that students be that demographic info be that um you know whatever custom fields you create 
and you just define what fields you want. You define the order. If you need to find and replace to match with another system, um, you can pop it out as a CSV or a TXT. But rather than lock you into this is a template that we feel like schools were going to use, we just give you complete flexibility. That's the data you want. You can kick it out. You can save it. You can push it to make available um, to different you know, end users depending on their needs. Um, but we have, we have clever integration. I would say, um, you know, it brings its own challenges. Sure. Sorry. It's been, no, a I'll speak to that, to that export stuff as well. in those reports, I got to sit through a, uh, a little bit of a demo with Stuart on Jupiter, but then he gave me a demo, like a sandbox access, uh, and the reports and the, the ability to work with data, uh, he's not like overstating or overselling that. Like it was very flexible and very easy to like get to the data that you're wanting to get to. Uh, it was easy. It wasn't difficult. <laughs> so if a district was looking at leaving and wanting to convert to a new sys, what is your implementation time frame like typically, including training, not, not nitty gritty details, but you know, overall big picture, how, how long does that typically take for you guys? I would say two months, maybe okay. a month. Um, it's it, a lot of it's the integrity of the data that's leaving your other sets. Right. Um, right. I mean, the, the challenges on any integration is, you know, that flexibility and data, if you can get it out of a CSV, we can make it make sense to get into Jupiter. Um, and that same export capabilities, you know, it's very similar on the import, um, import side of things. Um, so I think a month or two months, I think one thing that's important that, that your, your readers might want to hear is, is we have a support team that our average reply time on an email is a human will get back to you in an hour and 17 minutes. Hmm. Um, that's our time frame. We don't have, we're not going to send you to a community link of like, let's see what everyone else says to find solutions. Um, so <laughs> our, yeah, I mean, you've been there. You've been there. You're like, great, this is really what I need to see what some other tech in Uzbekistan has found out about how this works. Like, you just want an answer. So I would say a month to two months. Um, I mean, a lot of that's going to depend if you are in a panic in late August. Don't do that. Like, right. that's going to be a hot mess on everybody's side. Um, but, yeah, we, we've had a lot of a lot of schools that have, have made this happen in a month. I mean, a lot of – I mean, I don't know. You know, it – a lot of this just depends on tech bandwidth in July. Like, right. like let's be real. Like, like it has to do with vacation scheduling. Like sure. that is when, um, you know, when a lot of that ends up happening, but it's not a huge long process um, to make that happen. And I think, you know, you may have already heard this, but you know, we don't have all the, you know, one of the things that we don't have is if you're looking for a solution for bus monitoring, don't come to us. So when it says yeah. all in one, we don't have that. If you're looking for staff HR, we don't have that. And we try to be really upfront, but what, but what we do, because I think when you think about a SIS or an SMS, a lot of people have a package in their mind of what that is. And I feel like a lot of companies kind of take advantage of that. Um, but we do what we do. We do it really well. And there's some things we don't do, and we're not going to try to um, do everything in you know a piss poor manner be honest sure um, we, we do it we would you speak to so and, and not to, not, a, not not to we'll box you in on not to box you in on this answer either but what what targets like population school district do you go for or what's the common customer look Ooh. like 
What does a common customer look like? All right. Well, our smallest school that we support is three students um, in North Dakota. The largest individual school we have is 6,000 students. Um, so we support from the smallest school in the country to the largest high, individual high school in the country um, are currently using Jupiter. Um, as far as our typical customer, if you're from if, if you're the superintendent of Kansas, Kansas City, like, please call me like, but we're probably that's not our target at this space. We're looking typically for 500 to, you know, 500 to probably 10 to 15,000 is typically what we do well for the scale of access, especially what I was talking about. Some of those other features um, tend to be a problem, but we work with a lot of small districts. Um, we work with a lot of independent parochial schools in the state of Missouri. Um, but we haven't really hit into the district. So if you haven't heard of us, that's because you haven't heard of us. And that's why we're here today. Um, but we can scale pretty easily. Um, and, you know, we have districts throughout the Midwest, just not in Missouri. But I know y'all are going for worldwide now. So why am I talking yeah. about just Missouri? I know K-12 Tech Talk is going all over now. So if they wanted to get a hold of you, what's what's the best way to get a hold of you, Stuart? Um, you know, I, if you don't want to pop my email in the show notes, that's probably yeah. the easiest direct link that will go to an actual email to myself. Uh, that's Stuart with a U dot miles at Jupiter Um, you know, you can definitely go to our website, um, which is, you know, just Jupiter ed.com. If you go to Jupiter.com, you'll learn all about industrial pipe fittings would not recommend. Um, but you can go there, um, <laughs> and we have some demos and information there and, you could, you know, you can reach out through sales that way. I, we keep it kind of personal. Um, we don't, if, if you reach out to me via email, I'd be happy, you know, to jump on a phone call to discuss. Um, I think, um, you know, I was mentioned prior to the show, like I'm in sales. I'm also in success. I kind of bridge those gaps. So if you talk to me, I'm not going to gloss over. If you ask me about, you know, data integrations, I'll be able to answer that. Um, so you don't have to go through the slick sales pitch before you get your questions answered. That might be a no or might be a maybe. Um, we want to start with the techie questions, and that's why we're here, because we really see the value in K-12 Tech Talk being one of the few places where the techs can see it, as opposed to maybe people higher up in the district who are making those decisions that are, are down to you, um, because you see the nitty-gritty. Great. All right, cool. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, and hopefully we can uh, drum up some listens for you or get some people to contact you. Um, I think it's... it in the in the world of sis and kind of the shakings that are going on right now i think it's uh people are, are best served to look at more than one solution so uh hopefully they'll put uh jupiter on that list and go from there yeah you know i hope so i mean we are very aware that the sis is full of some sis market is full of some very big players as i'm sure all of your listeners and k-12 um you know like it's power school it's infinite campus and you know tyler was there it's in a lot of other other small players, but, you know, we're small, we're agile, um, and we just, you know, want to be a part of the conversation um, to see if it could work for your district. All right, cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Right on. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate Thank you. The views and opinions expressed on the K-12 Tech Talk podcast are the personal opinions of Josh, Chris, and Mark, and do not represent the views or opinions of our sponsors or other organizations that we're affiliated with. The material information presented here is for general information and entertainment purposes only. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.